This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, the internet, uh, all of the best stuff out there uh, that we want to talk to you about. Uh, tonight, uh, behind the desk, we have Cassandra Wright. Cass, how are you tonight? Pretty good. As good as you can be heading into winter, I think. Yeah. Have you you got the winter blues already, have you? Or are you just anticipating that a little bit? I just feel like everyone around me is just dropping like flies. Really? Um, if flies drop, I haven't they, <laughs> seen they do a drop. fly recently. They do drop. What goes up? Yeah, uh, yeah you know flu shots, all that. Everyone's mm. like, oh, my winter bones. So. How has uh, technology been for you this week? You winning or losing? You know, I downloaded the Sims 4 trial finally. Mm. Um, so that clock on that 48 hours is ticking. Yeah. And instead I'm here instead of grazing my Sim family. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's your real, you it's your real family. Yeah. It's, it's my only family. What could be more important? Um, also, Colin Jacobs, how are you tonight? I'm fabulous as always. And uh, you're uh, just back in the country. You've been um, busy elsewhere, I understand. That's right. So I work on uh, convolutional neural networks as my uh, day oh, me job too. studying. Oh, really? Well, yeah. there you go. Sh- <laughs> let's, uh, let's interview each other at a yes. subsequent episode. And so I've just spent a, week in, uh, Mun- uh, a month in Munich um, collaborating on a project there. So I'm back full of beer and bratwurst, but, uh, but ready to go. I'll be with you also. Uh, I'm Warren Davies. Uh, tonight on the show, we have uh, a couple of great guests that we're uh, eager to share with you. Uh, if you have been following technology uh, online um, over the past decade or two, uh, Anthony Agius, or Des- Decryption, as he is uh, more commonly known these days, uh, would be no stranger to you. Um, we are going to get uh, a download shortly on his views on a range of topics um, that are um, um, familiar to, to many of you as well. Um, also, later in the show, uh, we'll be joined by Simon Pemberton of uh, If Academy. Um, they are on a mission to, uh, I guess, re-engineer how we learn um, design um, design theory. Um, so that will be an interesting chat. Um, I think education, you kind of tend to think of it as something that's been around for a long time in school rooms and, um, and whatnot, but um, it's a constantly um, changing process. Um, so yeah, I, I guess we can have a look at that continuum and see where it's up to. Um, but before we talk about those things, we do have uh, a lot of news that is uh, of interest. Um, Colin, I understand there's been some movement around uh, fair copyright uh, in Australia. You wouldn't steal a car, Warren. Would you download a movie? I would steal a DVD. Yes, I would. <laughs> um, well, maybe you would steal a car if it belonged to an evil corporation. But uh, copyright in Australia is, yes, there's um, a new campaign. It's been launched by Electronic Frontiers Australia and, uh, the, and Wikipedia together. And what they're doing is calling for fair use um, in Australian copyright law. So what that that means is that, for instance, in the United States, if you use some copyrighted material, um, that use can be legal if it's fair in the sense that you're not taking revenue away from someone um, and you're not uh, restricting their ability to control um, the commercialisation um, of that work. We're, but in Australia, the ability to use copyright material is much, much more restricted. Um, a few educational uses, um, satire or parody, um, and they're listed um, in the Act um, without any further avenue for expansion. So what the what the uh, campaign is about is saying we should change our copyright law, bring it up to the digital age, and it'll have a fair use clause uh, that will stand the test of time. When new technology comes out, um, as long as the use is fair, then it will be allowed. Interesting. It's. Uh, I think there's been eight uh, eight governments um, over the past uh, two decades that have recommended um, 
it seems almost unanimously that um, uh, fair use proposals should be put into practice. That's right. Like the current Copyright Act talks about videotapes and things like that. It's hopelessly mm. out of date. So the the last two reviews, the um, Australian Law Reform Commission produced a very comprehensive report in 2014 and foremost amongst their recommendations was fair use in Australian copyright and the Productivity Commission had a look last year and they made the same recommendation and so we're waiting to see what the government does. Now, um, of course, there are vested interests that like things the way they are. Um, uh, copyright holders, particularly the bigger um, corporations, uh, don't uh, aren't particularly well disposed to expanding the range of ways people can use it. But smaller content creators and people on the internet who like to take something, transform it, spin it, remix it and put it out again would be the ones who would really benefit from this. And so let's hope we get a little bit of movement this time. Mm. Speaking of movement, uh, Cass, there has been um, some movement uh, over at uh, the Blue Social Network. Well, there are, there's quite a few blue ones. Facebook. Um, <laughs> which one isn't blue? Which one isn't blue? Uh, they are trying to find new ways for us to meet people. Is that right? Yeah. So all of this has come out of a rather lengthy Facebook post by Mark Zuckerberg himself. Mm. Uh, it basically came out because he wanted to explain why he wasn't running for office. We've got a lot of hopeful 2020 US presidents mm. Uh, I've been asking about myself, yeah, Yeah. just why isn't he? Um, You know, he's going around, he's going to every state in America. Why? Mm. Well, he said it's not because he's trying to um, get people hot on his campaign trail, but actually he's trying to get to every single state, find out more about the relationships and what bring people together. Mm. Now, people have seen this to point to a sort of who you should know feature that will come into Facebook. It's something that's only in early days and is still speculation, but we want to keep our ear to the ground for it because he said he's met with kids in juvenile detention centres, he's met with heroin addicts. Guys, about, and, guys you know, and tractors I can see here. Guys and tractors, you know, yeah. you've, you've got to... I'm on that Facebook um, page. <laughs> but um, he's mentioned sort of, you can read the whole post on his Facebook page, obviously. Um, but he's mentioned a few different things like the Peace Corps or Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, people who struggle and, and come together and build these relationships. It'd be interesting to see how it plays out because for a lot of people, Facebook groups have become the new message boards, um, so to speak, where you can build local communities about certain subtopics. The only thing is it's not as anonymous as it once used to be. So mm. it, it will be interesting to see how, you know, Facebook might recommend you, oh, it looks like you're going down a path of self-destruction. Here's some positive role models in your life mm. without being super annoying or giving away too much about your privacy. So, um, yeah, we'll have to see. I think algorithms are always a thing that we're going to kind of resist against a little bit. There was a great piece about um, the same thing happening on there, um, on Instagram and how, hey, there's a great, there's a great, amazing feature that allows us to curate exactly who we want to follow and hear from called the follow button and we've all pushed it a bunch of times and you don't need to tell us you know who else we should be hearing from and how often and uh, and so forth so well, it's it's interesting i think the the word here is should um so how do they determine should and um who's best and and so forth i, th I think one of the things that frustrates me about that network the most is the kind of filter bubble approach where every t quite often when you go on there it's the same people talking about the same things and everyone's agreeing with everybody else i feel like there's a lot of sameness that goes on there which is why i quite like some of the other things where you you get in arguments and there's people you don't like and you're having conversations with those people and that well, feels a bit better there's two levels really because with facebook it's always been like this it's mm. been the relationship building connection and then ads 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 so yeah. 
really what we should be thinking about is how will this be used to exploit? <laughs> how will this be used to, to get into more people's lives? We had two weeks ago, Facebook Australia and New Zealand saying, basically, we found a way to reach teenagers that they're mm. most vulnerable to sell mm. them products. So, yeah. Anyway, aside from the scaremongering, <laughs> just something that we need to be mindful of rather than um, burning down people's houses and stuff like that. But Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. I've got some more scaremongering for you. Oh, okay. So in the uh, in the wake of the WannaCry ransomware, um, Bruce Schneier, who's a um, very, very well-known and respected security commentator, um, had an op-ed this week uh, connecting, the, connecting WannaCry and ransomware with the Internet of Things. Mm. Now, it's already happening more and more that, you know, the devices in your home, you, what your fridge um, is now a computer that cools food and your microwave mm. is now a computer that heats food and, mm. and so on. And... Um, the capacity for them to be um, infiltrated and held to ransom mm. is you're potentially just as high as, as computers and ordinary Give data. me back my lasagna, you fiends. Yeah, yeah, well, like what he gave an example, for instance, of a thermostat. Now, if you live in like the frozen north of the you know, um, mm. United States or Canada, for instance, if someone hacks your thermostat and turns off your heat, all mm. the pipes in your house could freeze and it could cost mm. thousands of dollars in damage. It happened in our workplace. They got into air conditioners and turned them off. Uh, couple of years ago. Right, there you go. And I, I personally been approached by someone to borrow a Bitcoin to pay ransomware in the not too distant future. So like, it really is really is happening. But if you buy a thermostat, what guarantees do you have that the company that sold that to you will be producing security patches and will be around for the next, you know, 10, 20 or 30 years to, mm. to do that? You have no guarantees. So um, unless we're very, very careful, um, you know, what, what are we going to have? You can't back up your thermostat. Mm, that's true. Uh in good news, um, there has been, a, a, I think, an interesting and positive use of uh, drone technology um, in Africa. Uh, drones are being used uh, potentially to combat poaching in Southern Africa. Um, it's probably one of the um, biggest problems that does involve a lot of um, people hours, um, getting out there, trudging around looking for poachers and um, uh, watching migrating herds and so forth. Um, software has been used by, uh, yeah, um, Basically, it identifies animals, vehicles, and poachers in real time, and um, they've got somebody monitoring those and f uh, figuring out the patterns and then sending out rangers to actually have a look at it um, and get on top of it. So I quite like that. It could use for neural networks, spotting the poachers from the elephants. Spotting the poachers. Um, that would be great. And we're joined now in the studio by Anthony Aegis. Uh, you might know Anthony with his online handle, Decryption. Anthony's been involved in the Australian tech scene for a long time now. Um, he was the founder of Mac Talk in 2003, back when Apple was cool. And his latest venture is a daily tech news roundup called The Sizzle. Anthony, uh, what are the big trends that you've seen changing in the time since you started Mac Talk uh, to now? It's changed quite rapidly. When I started Mac Talk, electric cars weren't really a thing anybody was talking about. I don't think uh, Tesla didn't exist. Um, Facebook was you know, ins ins insignificant. The whole social media stuff, there was nothing around social media back in 2003. That wasn't even on our, our radar as a way to promote something, for example. But now it's, it's all over it. And um, government IT stuff seems to be, like the government encroaching on the internet seems to be a lot more pervasive now than what it was back then. They seem to care more about the internet than they, now than they, than they did back then. So we'll talk, we'll dig into a few of those topics. Those are very interesting. Um, you, your latest venture, the, the Sizzle, the sizzle.com.au, you're, you're um, summarising all the happenings in tech news on a daily basis. Um, like what attracted you to, to that venture and why um, 
Is it harder now than it was before to keep on top of what's happening in tech? Well, there's just so many. The reason I started it was because I had many friends who I used to be able to chat about this stuff with who suddenly had more responsibility in their lives as they got older. <laughs> they're like, oh, they've got a family. They've got jobs that actually need their their attention now. Um, just more stuff in the way, yet there's more news than ever. Now, these topics are kind of more important than they ever have been um, as they become more more mainstream. So that was kind of a reason to start this as well was to kind of keep people up to speed because people were not just this is a big flood of information and how do you sort you know what they need to know about versus just some PR you know stuff or what you know junk that I don't need to actually know about. You oh. moved away from from Apple. Uh, Mac, you, you sold Mac Talk and moved yeah. on from that. Has your opinion of Apple changed? Have have they now that they're the world's biggest mm. company? Um, how has your relationship changed with the brand? Well, again, when I started, Apple was very much the not startup, but the underdog. You know, people were not using Apple computers as much. Um, they were on the brink of death not too long ago. Um, they were just starting to be cool again, and now they're the world's biggest company. They make more profit than oil companies. Um, there's so many. They're not. They don't need an a person fighting for them anymore. They don't need a little community of, of fans around them to kind of back each other up, like what we used to to consolidate. You know, to, sorry, to confirm our decision to buy these computers anymore. Now it's just it's very much mainstream. And yeah. So how has the uh, the news cycle changed in your point of view? So from a like an editorial point of view, um, back with Mac Talk and you know whether it's just yourself or, or with friends and so forth, um, there's a lot more competition for for people out there. Like I probably my best source of news right now is the Messenger app for ABC. Like since Quartz came out, that that was kind of the best idea for for getting something like that. What would have been the most significant shifts in the I guess the 15 years since you started publishing stuff? Um, and what what did you enjoy most in that time? What was the easiest kind of formula as a publisher? You thought? I mean, uh, what's changed is that it's definitely now mainstream. Like you have things on the TV news about. You know, te- technology that would never have been mentioned before. Mm. Like now, you know, things that happen on Twitter and Facebook become the news stories themselves, which definitely didn't exist back in t- you know ten or even maybe five years ago. Mm. Um, and the, but the topics used to be more forward-looking, as if oh, this is going to be cool one day in the future. If you remember um, uh, Beyond Two Thousand? Oh, great you know, people, p- people used to look forward to technology. It was an exciting thing. Now it's very much oh, God, what's going to happen next? How, how are they going to mine my information and, and then use it against me? Or how is my government going to censor me from saying what I need to say? Mm. Or these things seem to be more common than what they were in the past. Uh, we're seeing lots of people come in actually and talk about how journalism is dying, how people don't want to actually pay for content anymore. Yet with the sizzle, um, you've got something going, which is a subscription-based service. You do get a two-week free trial, which I'm sure hooks quite a few. Um, but but you've got that going in the face of everything seeming to say that, no, no, this shouldn't be happen- happening. And yet we are seeing things like Patreon move forward. Uh, what are your thoughts on this new sort of new wave of, of people actually paying for the news that they want. Yeah, I, I think it comes from a point of view of um, when the news is free, you're not the customer anymore. The customer is the person paying for this company to pr- produce that, that news. And if your income source is derived from the people who you know, pay for it, that's a lot more 
genuine, I think, and your responsibility is the person that pays you, not the person that reads is the person that pays you. So it's the same thing, or as in most media, unfortunately, the aim is to drive ad, uh, ad revenue, not so much please the customer. They kind of go hand in hand. You please the customer, you get more ad revenue, but not always. There's a lot of PR things in the background that are, are d- disguises news that aren't necessarily news. They're only news because somebody pushed it in front of the journalist, and that's unfortunate. But you know, this is only a small part of that. But I, I mean, I, I hope it becomes a, a larger trend. But um, it's still not a mainstream thing. People, I still think, have a resistance to pay for their content. They've been conditioned by, you know, I mean, think of, of again of Facebook, of Apple, of um, uh, Google. The amount that they produce for free really is like, well, what? I can get these awesome things for free from these companies. You want me to pay for this? This is not as good. It kind of skews the value proposition a lot. So um, one of the trends you've sort of mentioned now is that tech is making the mainstream news with stories like Facebook and so on. And in my experience, um, Facebook and Facebook privacy in particular are very attractive to mainstream media. Um, From reading the sizzle and hearing you talk, you have big privacy concerns about Facebook and Google and where companies like like this are going. How do you see that trend changing? Is it a worry? It's a concern. Um, You kind of have to be a bit more optimistic about it. You kind of have to pray and hope that they don't abuse it some way. Um, I think so far it's been a bit naive from the companies like, oh, we had this information, there's no big deal, don't worry about it, relax, we're not going to be, be bad guys. But that's what the Stasi said back in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s in, in, in East Germany. You know, not, not to compare the two, but when you've got all that information there, it's a very sweet target for someone who's not as benevolent to... Take, take advantage of Well, you mentioned the Stasi. Look, since Facebook became ubiquitous, we've had the sort of Snowden leaks and whatnot, which indicate, you know, how actively governments are listening to all of our traffic you know, online um, and hoovering it all up. Does that change your relationship with Facebook or Google at all? Is that in the back of your mind? It's definitely in the back of people's minds, but I don't think it's having any impact on whether people use it or not. I mean, maybe a tiny, on the margins, a few tinfoil hat people might stop, but I think... The vast majority of people tend to... They, I think that, that they're aware. People are definitely aware. The fact we're talking about it here means that we're aware, but I don't think it impacts... I mean, you're using uh, Google Docs, I think. Mm. Yes, yeah, uh, hello so, NSA. <laughs> so there you go. Like it has, that has, obviously, that, that, that hasn't changed what you use because you're still using it. I think people's attitudes to this have changed significantly since you know our parents or grandparents' generation. Um, the idea that someone could overhear a phone call or something like that would have been abhorrent or terrifying to, to them, um, you know, in sort of you know Orwell's vision of sort of what life was like. But nowadays, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just publish our you know our most obvious things. In the age of transparency, we're encouraging corporations to do the same. We want to know everything about you: profit, loss, um, amount of people on this pay band, projections, all of those things. It's almost like the era of transparency. And the flip side to it is we do give access unwittingly to stuff that probably shouldn't, but I guess places like the Sizzle should be encouraging us to think about that. Should you really be putting out your DNA sequence out there? You know, if there is a benefit to getting lower premiums on your health insurance, but the downside is blah, blah, blah. So it's interesting times, certainly. You know, yeah. why would you be doing anything else, really? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's definitely... Making people aware is the first step, of yeah. course, whether they act on it. I mean, sometimes it can be... Uh, uh, overblown as to whether it's actually an issue. Mm. I think there's a lot of drama around. I think it is, it is an issue that the data has been collected and it's all there and there's a dossier on what I do all day, every day for some pri- by some private company. Mm. But 
is it that bad? I don't think pretty I don't think it's stuff, as bad like, as the worst, know. but it's not good that it is there. Well, are people are people doing it consciously? Like, are people aware of how much they're giving up to these companies in exchange for a product or some convenience? Well, it's it's not easy to find out. That's kind of the hard thing. Um, it's not like Google has a Google dot com slash you know, uh, you know a page where you can just see what they have on you. I mean, full. You can see what they want you to see. They have on you, but everything that they have, like there are people who are not on Facebook yet, they have Facebook profiles in Facebook's uh, ad database. So when they do decide to use it, it's it's already there. So the, the transparency from these companies about what they have on you is not very robust. And I think the government's trying to uh, make this happen and not having much luck because they constantly try and find them and make rules and they don't seem to have, to have any impact. Hmm. So um, I, I use Uber a bit um, and I'm consciously aware that now the service knows exactly where I am all the time and can sort of follow me around. From reading the sizzle, you've got a bit of a grudge against Uber. Mm. Um, you do like to cover electric cars and uh, autonomous vehicles, a subject which I find very interesting. But um, how, does Uber, how does Uber fit into that and what's your take <laughs> there? I mean, Uber in general are a distasteful company from my, my, my personal opinion. Um, but they are doing, were perhaps, doing a lot of research into self-driving cars because that would be obviously a big boon to the way that, that, that they operate. Remove that cost of a person sitting in the seat and, and having to pay them, you're making a lot more money. Um, but unfortunately, it seems like cause they're, they're actually quite, at the moment, um, in a battle with um, uh, Waymo, which is Google's self-driving car development team um, over uh, stolen patents and, and uh, stolen information. About the LiDAR system or something. Yes, right? about, about LiDAR systems that one of their ex-employees who was purchased by Uber took took with him and, you know, that would really set back what they're doing. And even because uh, Uber in Pittsburgh has a um, self-driving car group that actually you can actually go for a ride in one. You call an Uber on your phone and the, the, the car has a person in the driver's seat but the car drives itself. When they're actually transparent about how successful they are, they're actually one of the worst teams doing it. So Uber's trying hard, they're throwing money out of the hand of a fist, yet their results don't seem to be as good as someone like Volvo or General Motors. How do your readers respond to the stories about electric cars and autonomous cars? Is that something that techies are super keen on? I've got an electric car mm-hmm. in a park not far away. I'm, you know, I'm a fan, but is it generally something people respond to? I think the, the cars themselves, people don't seem, most tech people don't seem to care that much about. Um, if if you're a car enthusiast, maybe because that's just a new technology in cars. But if you're a um, uh, a technological kind of person, the self-driving stuff interests you a lot more because that can rapidly change society. And that meeting of technology tra- changing society is very interesting for a, a lot of tech people. So if people want to uh, get their own version of the sizzle, uh, how would they go about that? Visit thesizzle.com.au. There's a little form there. Pop on your email address and you've got a two-week free trial. And if you like it, you can pay after that. I feel like I have been getting an auto-tweet at about 8.30am. Yep. uh, 8.45, 1.15 and 5.45. It works anyway. It's a nice little bot. Just keeps them pumping out to add. Uh, If you have um, been in a schoolroom or taken a class recently, you will know that there's lots of different ways to learn. Um, You might be talking to people, part of a group. uh, You might just be doing it online. You might be taking a yoga class uh, on YouTube. Uh, Lots of different ways that you can do it. 
one of the organisations out there that is challenging uh, how we experience education is If Academy and the founder, Simon Pemberton, is with us in studio tonight. Simon, thanks for coming along. Thanks for inviting me. So, did you, was there some kind of epiphany or moment where you just thought education kind of isn't working, especially for, for design education? What made you, what sort of put you on this journey, I guess? Yeah, thank you. It's a good question. I, I think two things. Um, one is I, I come from a graphic design background. Um, is that better? Um, and therefore always kind of hungry for excellence in creativity, so quality. And the other is a growing recognition or an understanding, if you like, that design education, education generally, but certainly design education, um, is really not keeping up with how the industry is evolving. Um, so those two kind of really, actually act, do re really keep me awake sometimes. Did you find, were people coming to you from both ends of it? Sort of um, people who employ designers and designers themselves going, it's not really working for us? Or um, No, no one came to me because designers are busy being designers mm. and education's getting on with the business of education. So it was me that was going to both of those, um, particularly to designers though, because that's where I come from. So that was an easy um, target for me to talk to. They're people I know. And education, to an extent, um, any educationists listening now won't quite really agree with me, but they're not actually really listening. They sort of can't. It's not their fault. The revolution in education is a very big topic and very active one at the moment, but is there, is there something about design in particular that puts it at the, the pointy end of this, um, this change in the way we've done things for so long? Um, yeah, I think there's two parts to what uh, to the to the question. First of all, uh, I, I'm still not convinced about the revolution, to be honest. Um, but design certainly, because it's moving so fast. I mean, you guys were talking about drones just a few minutes ago. Who would have thought two or three years ago there were serious jobs for drone pilots? You know, it's kind of to do a university degree takes three years. To accredit a degree takes another four years. So four years ago, they're writing programs for a job that just doesn't didn't exist then. It's, it's a challenge. So what uh, I've actually noticed on IF Academy's website and, and a little bit about you, again, is that you, you say you are deliberately non-accredited because you don't have to then go through that long process and you can be a bit more agile. As someone myself who's been uh, floating in and out of the uh, university postgrad <laughs> system for a while, uh, I can definitely appreciate that the university system can't always keep up with with the change that that is happening but what exactly do you do differently in your courses I mean we've got we've heard especially from designers there's sometimes issues with valuing their worth they're moving into this sort of freelancer economy online sometimes where it's hard for them do you help out with any of that job readiness and skills and and other sorts of uh, areas too? Yeah, I'm, uh, we do, um, but not in, in, in an obvious way. I mean, I think we would certainly be helping with job readiness because what we're delivering is as contemporary as it can be. You know, we, we can literally be running a classroom with a creative director from one of the top digital agencies in Melbourne and he can arrive that morning and say, listen guys, I've decided not to deliver what we've been talking about because something's just happened in the office. We're now going to spend the next hour and a half talking about this. As, um, you know, universities can do that but in terms of getting off the beaten track to qualify with your degree because there are you know, sort of bureaucratic guidelines you have to follow it's much harder for them so it's much more contemporary and therefore much of much more interest to the, to the industry 
Importantly to the industry, this is absolute fact. In fact, I was talking to a senior creative director in Sydney only last week. They don't actually really give a damn about qualifications. Many of them haven't gotten themselves. So, you know, I mean, they're useful to have for lots of for lots of reasons, but they're not they're not an end in themselves. I mean, we are beginning to see that you put yourself into a lot of debt sometimes for yeah. for a piece of paper, and then head out into the real world, and are again starting from the bottom, yeah. um, maybe doing an unpaid internship and really scraping scraping to get by. It's not the same sort of system that we've been led to believe that it is. It's 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 changing so fast. I mean, we talked about drones already, um, but I, I, I just checked the internet again today in preparation for this evening. There was about 800 jobs nationally on SEEK for graphic designers, over 3,000 jobs for experienced designers, which actually are graphic designers. Almost certainly most of those would be. Um, that's very, very near, this whole idea of designers working. I mean, it's come out of that whole user experience, that whole UX thing, but, uh, you know, that's certainly less than two or three years old. That whole shift is huge. So I heard a presentation by a professor at my university on Monday just wondering whether they'll still have jobs in 10 years because the sort of the model of the lecture and you get up and you give a presentation that's going away and there's a lot of fantastic content on the internet now and different ways to learn collaborate with with your peers etc are you are you worried that um, the proliferation of good material online could be a um, a problem for you? Do you will, will if academies exist in 10 or 15 years? Um, probably not in its current format because everything evolves all the time but I, I'm actually genuinely excited by that. I think the professor, whoever he is, needn't worry. Um, all creative activity is collaborative. The shape, the form, the content, how it's done will, will evolve. Um, universities might find it hard to evolve quickly um, they may not, but um, I'm, I, if, if he's good at what he does and he cares, he's fine. <laughs> Do you have an approach to the topic of assessment? Um, obviously, the old pens down, exam over sort of models, probably not huge on your list, but... Yeah, well, again, that's something we feel strongly about in terms of assessment. Um, a design business presents a piece of work. They don't get marks out of 100. They get feedback from the client. They like it. They don't like it. They want to change red to green, and that's what we do. Getting 60 out of 100 is meaningless. And the other problem that they all have, the accredited courses, is another student gets 62. So the guy with 60 goes to the teacher and says, how come you got the two extra points? It's just so not an issue, but it becomes one, and it shouldn't. Mm. It's interesting. I, I think um, one of the things that you do get um, out of a traditional course is uh, an appreciation for structure and um, resilience. And even even when some of it is not entirely appropriate or you know even a waste of time, you're learning structure, which are appreciated by a lot of organisations. So, I mean, like I've been trying to recruit people, and people coming back to me, like, what about part time or flexible, and can I do it remotely? Which is wonderful. I think that's the way that we should go, but. Are we losing structure as everything becomes more fluid? Because whether you're a bank or whether you're a um, creative agency or anything, there are a lot of structures there that maybe we're losing if we're not learning in structured environments. Structures, I think, probably are changing, Warren, and I think it's a good question. But I don't think it's cause for concern or, or, or any, any issues because design is a process. It doesn't really matter what the structure is. It's a creative process. So provided people can deal with that and designers do and can, I think it's mm. fine. Well, I mean, how do they learn structure? If um, you finish school and then you download a syllabus and you start doing it sort of in between your other projects, 
how, how does how does one learn structure and discipline? Yes, well, in that environment, there's a risk. I think it's a good question. But yeah. the good designers, good creatives, will work with good people who will help them build a structure. I mean, the yeah. ran, the randoms who might just pick up stuff on on the internet are going to find it tough. Yeah, probably won't make it through. Won't Pro- get the results. Probably they want. not. No. no. And also, for anyone who's just tuned in, Simon, you have been involved quite heavily with a lot of uh, training organisations, TAFEs, and and universities. What have you taken from those um, in, in, a, in a positive way that you've then put into... Pens and staplers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've then incorporated because notes. if someone... I, I was just thinking, you know, someone could tune in and think, you know, you're completely anti I'm not the current system, but but no, yeah. you're, you're quite heavily involved in a, yeah, in yeah. a board capacity, yeah. an advisory capacity. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean... It's such a cliche, isn't it? It's all about being inside the tent as well, you know. So, and interestingly, talking to lots of people um, in higher education and in vocational education, they they're interested in keeping talking with me because of our industry connectedness. They all they talk about having industry connectedness, but they dream about having the level of industry connectedness we have. So they you know they want to stay friends because we can help. You know, and it's a small community. So, um, and if there's ways of helping people do a better job to produce better designers, I'm there in a heartbeat. So I've heard that students have different ideas about what they think they want and will help them learn than what actually helps them learn. And then often if you ask students, they, they prefer the older, older models. How do you engage with your learners about the learning process? How do you set up what the experience is going to be like for them? So um, the, the older learning models are really valuable in lots of ways. It's, it's, it's the emphasis you put on them and how you deliver them. Um, there's a, I'll, I'll try and keep the story very, very quick, but there's a recent project in, uh, in, in Sydney where we had some students and they were graphic, it's a graphic design program and it was to rebrand a, a, a famous, one of Sydney's leading um, galleries. And the student, as part of the research, because research is a huge part of the process now, discovered that this particular gallery, you have to go and park your car in a park, at a parking meter for two hours. So already, um, given that you want to go to the gallery for more than two hours, you're already starting off feeling a bit annoyed or on the back foot. So, And that's this experience thing. So um, really helping people understand, um, people being clients, um, what can be useful in terms of the experience and add that to all the traditional things that you're asking about is where graphic design is going. Because she's still, it was a girl, she's still going to have to design a brochure, she's still going to have to do the website, you know, manage type, all those things. Interesting. Um, one of the things that came out of, um, say, Khan Academy and MOOCs and, and so forth is the idea that... Um, you can pick up information and knowledge uh, anywhere. It doesn't obviously we don't have to go to a bluestone building or what have you. But learning comes from people and from questioning and asking, asking like what does this mean? How does this work? And we're still kind of social animals in a way. Mm-hmm. Is there is there a way for people at if to interact? Is there sort of whether it's hangouts or chats or, or anything online? How does the physical experience work? Well, if runs its programs very much um, in a traditional way. We have groups of people in a room. Oh, great. You know, so, but the room might be the balcony, it might be a lounge room, it might mm. be um, a, co- a co-working space. Mm. It doesn't need to be, in fact, generally isn't a traditional classroom. Yeah. Um, but no, the creative process requires interaction. Mm. It, it always has, uh, and I think always, always will. And what, what kind of feedback are you getting from students um, coming through or coming out of the, the sort of early courses compared to 
the sort of history you have with other um, institutions. What's the what's the main difference? Do you think? I mean, there's lots of vocational courses. Like even years ago, I did a vocational course. But how do you feel it's substantially different? I think um, oh, there'd be a few things. Probably the main thing is really enjoying meeting leading industry senior industry creatives and getting feedback. Um, and building that relationship so it's a contact down the track mm. um, is probably the key thing. Um, but all the university courses, you ask all the nearly... Um, I think I often say to people is, I have yet to meet someone who finished at art school and didn't enjoy their time. Mm. You know, I think it's, it's always a great experience, even if you don't end up using it. Yeah, well, we can always go on and form bands or yeah. you know, pick up expensive drug yeah. habits or something like that. There's lots of things you can Absolutely. do. Absolutely, most of the Rolling Stones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for coming in. If, um, if people are interested in, in taking a course, what, would, what should they do? Yeah, just go to the website, ifacademy.co. Just a few minutes left uh, on our show tonight. Uh, we do have uh, a few bits and pieces that we did want to bring your attention to. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, places that do collect too much of our data, but um, from another perspective, there's a certain comfort in places like Google uh, knowing uh, everything about you. Cassie, what's the, what's the background to this one here? Well, there's been a new book published by uh, St- Seth Stevens Dadofowitz. Good. Uh, I'll nearly get that name. Mm. Um, called Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Good title. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, basically what he's done is looked at different research and plotted his... He's a huge data nerd, a self-proclaimed data nerd in a very exciting way. And he's looked at different Google search terms and how they've played out against certain important events. For example, um, you had terrorist attacks in America and you had Obama's speeches after them and whether or not certain um, hate-filled terms were increased or decreased by the stuff that was being said. So... In, in looking at that, um, he began to become a little bit more interested in data and what Google Data is actually showing us is that on traditional surveys, we do get a lot of bias uh, for what we think is social socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. So if someone says, you know, um, do you pick your nose? You yeah. might say no, never, when mm-hmm. in fact, you know, you, you sneakily mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. On the internet, however, uh, we can see things that, that people type into Google that there is no real reason for them to lie about. It's their personal confessional box. Uh, There were some really interesting uh, traits that he found. For example, um, in India, the most common search for my husband was my husband wants me to breastfeed him, um, which, you know, is quite interesting because it's a taboo that's not really talked about, but yet there's the search data. That's, uh, That's what's really getting through. So... What is the responsibility then when Google's looking at these trends and if we can use this to predict who humans really are and who we are in ways that we lie to ourselves um, and we lie on surveys, what's next? (laughs) There's another book on that theme, uh, A Billion Wicked Thoughts, which is about what people search for when they're looking for sex. Um, Obviously, in that regard, people let their guard down quite a bit. So Interesting. Um, 
one thing that won't be letting its guard down is the first Robocop um, to hit the streets in Dubai. Uh, I do remember sneaking into this film when it was R-rated when uh, I was uh, a wee lad. So it seems like it's been a long time, but here it is. Um, the Ream is uh, about to join uh, the Dubai Police Force. It was initially built as a um, almost like a concierge for um, conferences and, and theatres and so forth. Um, it was launched back in 2011 as a customizable service robot on a wheeled base. Um, Dubai Police worked with Pal Robotics to refine it and they're hoping that it's going to be up to 25% of its police force um, by 2030, um, which is interesting. Um, I think it's going to be just doing pretty basic stuff to start with, so um, checking your parking tickets, bits they, and pieces they like I that. I think they said it won't be armed, but will that hold forever? Well, someone, someone will just go, well, surely this is going to make it easier and we can all just hang at the pool at the police academy or something. If we could put some guns on these things. Yeah, well, I, I saw another robot video this week from Russia where they, where the robot had two normal handguns and was shooting with incredible mm. accuracy. So it's being thought about. If you look at the Boston Dynamics stuff, um, um, it's pretty scary what they do with like cats that can sort of you know climb um, climb stuff and it's um, yeah, yeah. Looking at that video, you should look at it because it's the first time I've seen one and thought. I could just imagine myself being chased down by that thing. Like, yeah. it's very agile and pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, we've all seen Futurama and Robot Santa. I'm not sure <laughs> that we want Robocops to, to be given. No, well, if they look like those kind of like uh, funny kind of like Sony soccer playing robots <laughs> that can like make you a GNT or something like that, that's kind of cool. But um, yeah, surely there is, um, there is a downside to that as well. Um, I can't see a downside to this though. Uh, playing Doom anywhere and everywhere. Well, you, you know your technology's made it when f someone's found a way to hack it and install Doom on it. And the latest bit of equipment mm. is a thermostat. So someone's got Doom and a controller to work on their household thermostat. So it sort of harks back to what we said at the start about all your technology in your house being hackable. Well, if you can't play Doom on it, it's out of date. Sorry. What, why would you be doing it on your thermostat, I wonder? Do you reckon someone like back in the day has just been like, I spent a lot of time here, I'd love to be able to do it here? Or is it because kind of like Nest and so forth are sort of in our homes? I mean, the, People want that. The reason you get Doom on a thermostat is because it's a fun challenge to get it working. But mm. the reason you can it can actually run Doom is because you take off-the-shelf components that are that is a tiny computer and you put it in all of your um, consumer products and that's where the... You know the the fun, the hackability, um, mm. and all of the consequences of that begin. Interesting. Uh, it has been a super fun show. Uh, thank you to our guest Anthony and also to Simon. Uh, we've been bite into it, and I think we'll be back next week on a Wednesday. Um, you can find all of our stuff on the website, and uh, yeah, follow us on Twitter or Facebook if you like. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.